It's okay, you can clap. There seemed to be a moment of indecision there, like you weren't sure what you were supposed to do. Either way works. Um, do me a favor, take your Bibles and turn to John 3. We're going to be in John 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, there's ushers coming down the rows. Just raise your hand, grab a Bible from them. I want to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please just keep that as a gift from us. My name is David Wissen. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And um, we're going through a four-week series on Christmas, on Advent. Uh, last week we looked at hope. Um, this week we look at love. And when I take you to John 3 to be uh, doing a Christmas series from the book of John, that's a little bit of an unusual choice because there's no mention of Jesus' birth anywhere in the book of John. Actually, just two of the Gospels cover Jesus' birth. That's Matthew and Luke and the details surrounding the birth of Jesus. John never goes there. He starts his story right with the story of John the Baptist. And it's interesting to understand how the different Gospels approach telling the story of the life of Jesus. Matthew, he's kind of like an uh, attorney. And uh, he is making a defense for Jesus that he is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. So throughout Matthew's gospel that was written primarily for a Jewish audience, he is arguing that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He says over and over again, and Jesus did this so that the prophecy might be fulfilled constantly tying back the movements and the actions of Jesus to Old Testament prophecy. He was a lawyer. He was making a defense. Mark wrote the second gospel, which was actually not his account. It was Peter's account. Mark is Peter's scribe. Peter was kind of the head of the disciples, and he is a reporter. Uh, Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. It's a very um, movement-driven, just get me the facts. Here's what Jesus did. Luke is a physician, and Luke is making an argument that this God, Jesus Christ, was also fully man, so he describes in great detail what Jesus went through, what he endured. His account of what happens to Jesus surrounding his crucifixion, through his trials, and what Jesus physically experienced is greater than any of the other Gospels. And those three Gospels tell the story of Jesus in a way that they're called the synoptic Gospels. Their stories line up. They go through event after event, somewhat sequentially through Jesus' life. John's a completely different thing. John is an artist. He is a painter. He paints word pictures. He is not making an argument that this happened first and second and third. He's grabbing stories from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from the end of his ministry, and he's weaving them together to paint a painting and the cool thing about John's gospel is he's not just describing what happened, he's trying to explain to the reader why what happened happened. So as we last week opened our Bibles to John 1 to look at the birth of Jesus, we weren't looking at the events, we were looking at why the events took place. Same thing is true this morning. And John tells his stories, painting the picture. He, one of the illustrations that he is using is the contrast between light and darkness. He says in John 1 verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So rather than give you the details of Jesus' birth, what he's doing is he's saying, Jesus was a light that came into a dark world. He was a contrast he will go on and say that men love darkness greater than the light. So as we get into John 3, you're going to see some verses that are very familiar with you, such as John 3, 16. 
But you need to understand that in front of these verses that are very familiar, at the beginning of John, Jesus tells the story of an encounter that he had with one individual. And then when we leave these familiar verses, right at the beginning of chapter 4, he tells of an encounter or a discussion that he had with another individual. These two individuals could be um, no more dissimilar. They are so different from one another. In John 3, Jesus has a discussion with the man. In John 4, it's a woman. In John 3, it's a leader. In John 4, it's an outcast. In John 3, the person who he is having this conversation with is a person of privilege, an elite of society. In John 4, it's a common person. In John 3, by reputation, it is a man who is righteous. John 4, it is a woman who would be unrighteous by most standards. One believes they are accepted by God. In John 4, the woman knows that she's not accepted by God. And in the middle of these two interactions are some of the most famous, important, and greatest verses about the love of God that you can find anywhere in the whole Bible. And the reason I chose this passage is because I think it's really important today that we understand what it means to be saved, to be born again. And you say, well, we talk about the gospel all the time. I, I understand that we do. But I would guess that if I were to ask the people in this room, have you been born again? Now, there's a weird word, born again. Or are you saved? Many of you would say absolutely, 100% sure, confident that I'm saved. And for those of you who feel that way, I'm happy for you as long as your certainty is based off with accuracy what it means to be saved. There are others in this room that though you come to church and though you are saved, you would say, not that I know that I'm saved, you would say, I'm pretty sure I'm saved. I think I'm saved. But there's nights, there's times, there's seasons when sometimes doubt creeps in. So some would say, I know that I'm saved. Some would say, I think I'm saved. There'd be others that say, I hope I'm saved. Not quite as sure. Others would say, I'm not sure. And there could be some in this room that would say, I'm not. I haven't gotten to that point. I haven't made that decision. And understanding that there's people, you know, some, I know, I think, I hope, I'm not sure, or I'm not, that I've got that whole spectrum in this room. What I want to do is look at these verses, familiar verses, and make sure that we understand with clarity what it means to be born again so that no matter where you stand, you at least know the criteria of what it means to determine whether or not you've been saved. The big idea this morning is this. I must acknowledge the reality that I might be missing it. I must acknowledge the reality that I might be missing it. John 3, we'll pick it up right in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, he's called a ruler of the Jews, and what that means is Nicodemus is a member of a governing body that's called the Sanhedrin. Israel is under Roman occupation, and Rome is the authority in their culture. Rome rules the world. And Rome will move with an iron fist 
if there's any insurrection or rebellion amongst the Jews. But as long as the Jews are complying with what the Romans are requiring, they let the Israelites govern themselves. And the governing body as it related to religious matters is the Sanhedrin. It's 71 Pharisees. In essence, he is one of the religious elite. He is righteous amongst the righteous. His name, Nicodemus, if you were to translate it literally, it actually means public victor. It's got some pressure when your parents name you that, right? That'd be like one of our parents saying, naming us champ. Okay, like that, that's what his name meant. It actually meant publicly victorious and being a leader, one of the righteous among the righteous, a member of the Sanhedrin. In many ways, he had lived up to the meaning of his name. And it says in verse 2 that Nicodemus came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Note he says we. For all we know, Nicodemus came to him alone by night, but when he asked Jesus his questions, he's asking it on behalf of we, in plural. And I don't know exactly what that means. What I am imagining or believe that it means is that the Sanhedrin or the religious leader were confused about who Jesus was. They had looked in the Old Testament. They were praying for Messiah. They were calling for Messiah. They were teaching on Messiah. But here came Jesus and there were things about Jesus that made them think maybe he could be the Messiah because he was doing miracles and signs that only someone from God could do. But the problem was there was a lot about Jesus that didn't fit their mind's view of what Messiah would look like. He was from Galilee. He was a carpenter. He wasn't educated with them. And he wasn't setting himself up to be a political Messiah. He was only talking about the kingdom of God. So they were confused, seeing signs that this might be true, but not sure. It was interesting this last week, I was, saw a couple articles, and then I kind of did some research on these articles. There were some men back in May, it just kind of hit the press in the last couple of weeks, but in May of 2018, earlier this year, they published an article in the Journal of Human Evolution. One of the men was Mark Stokel. He was from Rockefeller University in New York. The other one was David or a failure of the University of Basel in Switzerland. These two men did a genetic study that made the news a couple weeks ago. It was in the New York Times. It was in Forbes magazine. It was in the Daily Post, kind of international news, that they have done some genetic work. And what they have proven is that all of us come from the same mother and father. The article actually said this. Here's one of the headlines. It says, all humans may be descended from just two people. And a catastrophic event almost wiped out all species 100,000 years ago. So their study suggests recently in the scope of evolutionary time, in the last 100,000 years, our genetics prove that the majority are almost, they're, they're arguing all of humanity came from just two people near a cataclysmic extinct life extinction moment in human history. And what makes that amazing is common evolutionary theory says there hasn't been a life extinction moment for humanity for tens of millions of years. They're arguing that it happened within the last 100,000 years. And please understand that they're not arguing for Adam and Eve. But when you take their findings and lay it next to Genesis, they understood that this was going to be problematic. 
so much so that David Thaler, one of the study's founders, said this. He goes, the conclusion is very surprising, and I fought against it as hard as I could. He didn't want it to be true, because he didn't want to deal with the speculation that it would cause. Forbes magazine ran an op-ed about this story where the gentleman argued it can't be true. And what was interesting to me is the two reasons that they gave for it not being true in Forbes magazine was too small a sample size. That's an evolutionist making that argument. And secondly, it contradicts the rest of evolutionary theory. So therefore, it can't be true. But you understand, confronted with some facts that didn't fit their grid, this is exactly where the Pharisees found themselves as it related to Jesus. He's doing some things, but we don't want to believe that he's Messiah. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Problem one, came from God, doesn't address him that Jesus is God. Secondly, he calls him teacher. He's not getting it yet. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So these are intelligent men, religious leaders, well studied in the Old Testament, and they are entering into a discussion where they start to talk about an analogy, human birth, and comparing that to what it means to be spiritually born. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a couple things, just in thinking about this. Who in here requested that they were born? Like, like, nobody does that, right? You weren't born because you chose to be born. You were born because some other people made some decisions that led you be, to be born. Could we agree with that? So you don't get to choose to be born. It's an interesting thing about this analogy. Here's another thing. We're all born the same way. Doesn't matter if you're male, female, what your economic or social strata is. It doesn't matter what race or background or what family you're from. Everybody's born the same way. And some of you are like, well, that's not true. Technically, I was a C-section kid. Don't be that person, okay? <laughs> I'm not trying to get into the... Here's what I would say. There was a moment when you were inside and now you're outside. That's true for every one of us, would you agree? So none of us choose to be born. We're all born the same way. And the moment of birth is a life-altering moment. It's not the moment that life starts. I believe that started at conception. But we don't celebrate your conception day because, quite frankly, that would be awkward. <laughs> we celebrate your birthday because that's a life-altering moment that we look back and say that's the moment when life really began or when things changed this is the analogy that he uses second corinthians 5 17 says therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come please understand he says unless you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of god which means not that you might be able to. There is no choice. You have to be born again. This is not a choice to be born again that the religious fanatics choose. If you're going to be saved, if you're 
Listen, you must be born again. And in saying that, Nicodemus is now undone. He's a teacher of the law, but it's not based off his education. It's not based off of his efforts. It's not based off of his righteousness. And it's not based off his status. Everybody's in the same boat. You must be born again. Nicodemus in verse 4 says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now again, these are intelligent men. I don't think he's suggesting that medically he re-enter his mom's womb. Let's not dwell there, okay? I think that would be a simplistic way of looking at what Nicodemus is saying. I think in reality, he knows that Jesus has given an analogy about what it means to be spiritually saved. And here's Nicodemus, a leader, a Pharisee, a man who's followed the law his entire life. And I think he's looking and saying, how can, I'm old, man. I've already lived my life. I've made choices. I've made decisions. Those decisions have had consequences. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I have no idea how to go all the way back in time and start over. How in the world can a man like me start over? In essence, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Now, interestingly and completely irrelevant to anything that I'm saying, I read this week that PETA has come out and said to be socially um, uh, correct, politically correct, some of the old sayings that we've used, some of the maxims that we've used, we can no longer use. For instance, you can no longer say, um, I'm beating a dead horse. You now have to say, I'm feeding a fed horse. You can't say, I killed two birds with one stone. You have to say, I fed two birds with one scone. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Okay, so, so, but he is saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks. In essence, saying how in the world can somebody who's lived his life go back and live his life a different way to save himself? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, this idea of being born with water and the Spirit, I think is more difficult for us to understand, and I think there would have been some natural connections in Nicodemus's mind. When Jesus says that you need to be born of water, I think Nicodemus would have thought to what was the most important religious thing happening in his day, and that was John the Baptist, the prophet of the Lord, was out in the Judean wilderness baptizing people with water and calling all of Israel to experience a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of repentance. I think Nicodemus would have immediately went and said, Jesus is talking about repentance when he talks about being born of water. And when it says it's born of the spirit, I think Nicodemus would have immediately known. So it's repentance and something only the spirit can do, which is regeneration or to change somebody. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? It's two things. It is repentance and it is God changing us, the Spirit of God moving on us. Those are the two non-negotiables of what it means to be saved. Jesus explains this in more detail in verse 7. 
Do not, not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. Jesus makes another analogy and talks about being born of the Spirit, being like the wind. And something about the wind, you can't see the wind, but you see its effect. You can see things being blown around in a storm. You can see the effect of the wind, but you can't see the wind. And Jesus is saying, when the Spirit moves, it is the same. You might not see the Spirit move, but there is an effect that the Spirit moving has in our lives. It changes us. It moves us. There should be something about you where people look at you and say, they're different. They're not like they used to be. I don't know what happened. I didn't see what happened, but there is something different about that person. They are distinctive. They value different things than they used to. They value different things than we do. Is there things about you, if you're looking and saying, am I saved, am I not saved? Can you see things in your life where God is changing you? Where there is something different about you? Are other people noticing these things? Do you live your life in a way that is different. See, before you're saved, you look at God and say, what can a relationship with God do for me? After you're saved, you look and say, what can I do to serve God? That's a work of the Spirit. The first is just uh, moralism. The second is something the Spirit does. As a follower of Jesus Christ, do you live poorly even though you're rich? And what I mean by that is your hope, your delight, your joy isn't in the things that you possess. You have a joy that transcends those things. Do you live poorly when you're rich? Do you live rich when you're poor? When life is difficult, when health is removed and some of the things that you cherish are taken from you, does that take all of your joy? Or is there a foundation for your joy that goes beyond life's experiences? Are these things that are true of you? See, this is what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus. When the Spirit moves, your repentance plus the Spirit moving, that's what creates a confidence that you've been born again. Verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers in 10, he says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? That had to sting a little, don't you think? But I, I don't think it should just sting Nicodemus. I think that's some words we should take to heart. We preach the gospel every week at this church. Independent from this church, 24-7, you can download from the internet sermons. You can take online courses. You can hear radio shows that talk constantly about the gospel. We're not hurting for knowledge on what it means to be saved. We're hurting for understanding on what it means to be saved. It goes on in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 11 was weird to me as I started to study it. Why is Jesus talking about himself in the plural? He's in a conversation with Nicodemus and all of a sudden it's we, we, are. And what Jesus is doing is he is aligning himself 
with other men that have been sent by God with a message from God, the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is saying, I am another prophet in a long list of prophets who speak on behalf of God. We carry with us a word of the Lord. Nicodemus started the conversation by saying, we know you come from God. And he's saying, like others sent by God, you've heard what we've said, but you failed to listen. And then he says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you didn't believe, how could you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, that's an incredibly important statement, and Nicodemus would have caught immediately what it meant. Nicodemus has already said, we know that you come from God. Jesus not only confirms that and says, I did come from God, but I'm going to ascend back to God. Now, at Jesus' time, the time he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, if you died, you didn't go into the presence of the Lord. You could not because sin had not been atoned for yet. Jesus had not defeated sin and conquered death until he died on the cross. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus went to the cross, if you died, you went to a place called Sheol. There were no direct flights to heaven. There was a layover. And Sheol has two terminals based off whether you have put your faith in the promised Messiah and the word of the Lord or if you have rejected it. If you have put your faith, you go to the layover airport and your terminal is called paradise or Abraham's bosom. If you have rejected the promise of Messiah, then... You're not in that terminal. You go to the other terminal. It's called Hades or a place of torment. But when you died, nobody went directly into the presence of the Lord. And when Jesus tells a religious teacher, a religious ruler, that he will descend, not only did he descend from heaven, but he will ascend, that is a claim, a statement that he is God and that he will defeat death. And if you don't track with that, listen, he's going to make it very clear in the next verse. In verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man. He's just referred to himself as that in verse 13. He's talking about himself. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus would have known that he was talking about Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, and they begin to complain about God's provision for them in the wilderness. They say, I wish we would have stayed in Egypt. It was better for us there because we're going to die in the wilderness and we're tired of this stinking food you're giving us. Now, that stinking food had a name. It was manna. It was God's provision for them in the wilderness. And I would just like to bring this into present context Watch what happens next. You want to be very careful when you criticize God's provision for you. Because what happens next in the story in Numbers 21, I'll pick it up in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of them died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, 
And if a serpent bit anyone, hear this, he would look at it and the bronze serpent and live. So much in that story is a precursor for what Jesus Christ will do for us on the cross. First of all, the people, when they sin, they're bit by a serpent. Again, tying the serpent to sin, just like we saw in Genesis 3. The cure for this bite, the thing that would save you, is your ability to look at a serpent that is hung on a pole. Corinthians will tell us that when Jesus one day hangs on a cross, he who knew no sin will become sin in our place. The very problem that they had, sin, would be conquered by someone elevated who took our sin. Please note in the story, God doesn't say, hold up this pole with a serpent on it, and whoever has enough strength left to crawl up and touch the pole, they'll get healed. That would make your healing dependent on your ability to get to the pole. He didn't say, we're going to hold up this pole and the first hundred people that get to the pole will be healed. That would make it a competition about your ability versus someone else's ability. All they did was hold up the pole. And it didn't matter how many times you had been bitten. It didn't matter how far away you were. It didn't matter how sick and close to death you were. All you had to do was look and be saved. It didn't matter if you were Nicodemus, a righteous among the righteous, or if you were the woman at the well in John 4. Doesn't matter. You look upon Jesus to be saved, and God will heal you. Are you guys keeping notes? Like, I haven't gotten too far, have I? Does that make anybody nervous? Okay, so, so here's my deal to you. You're going to get out of here on time, but I'm going to get to the points in the notes so that the note takers don't start to freak out on me, okay? So as we get into John 3.16, I want to point out some things from the text that hopefully you see anew. Here's the first one. God's love is an initiating love. God's love is an initiating love. Verse 16 says, for God. It starts there. For God, he started it. He moves first. Now, I'm going to make some people very uncomfortable in the room because in church circles, there's always this debate between man's free will and God's sovereignty. I was over at some people's home from our church this week, and I said, what type of church did you grow up in? They said, a free will Baptist church. Now, there's a statement right in the name. <laughs> so, so people argue, did God choose us or did we choose him? And I don't think this is that complex. Let me try to explain this to you. Both are right and both are wrong. God did not create robots who don't have a free will. I'll concede free will as long as the free will people will concede that the choices that you make in your free will are determined by your nature. And quite honestly, the Bible's very clear on this. Because of sin... Your nature is darkened. We prefer the darkness more than the light. Let me illustrate this for you. In this cup, I've got some pieces of bacon. Okay? I'll just set that there for now. And then in this cup also, I don't need to put all the bacon down there. I've got some carrots. So on the floor, we've got a pile of bacon and a pile of carrots. I brought a friend with me. Come here, Gracie. So Gracie's going to come out here. Come here, Gracie. Okay. Oh. So, so here's, here's my dog. Okay. And, and I got a question for you. 
My dog has free will. There's two piles. There's carrots and there's bacon. If we were to bet, how many of you think the dog's going to choose the bacon? How many of you think the dog's going to choose the carrots? The sound guy thinks the dog's going to choose the carrots, okay? So we're 400 to 1, the dog's going for the bacon. Okay, she has seen something. Something has caught her attention. Go ahead, Gracie. Every time. Now, why are you done? Why did Gracie choose the bacon? Because she's a carnivorous or carnivorous canine. She's an apex predator. She eats meat. You can't turn your back on this dog. She'll attack. <laughs> Thanks. Because everything in Gracie's nature, her nature is she is a dog. She's never choosing the carrots. It's not happening. And you have free will, which is governed by your nature, which is polluted by sin. If you have come to repentance by your free will, it's only because God has shined a light on you and enabled you to see Jesus for who he truly is. God's love is an initiating love. Here's the second thing. God's love is a saving love. Look at verse 17. For God so loved. See, we celebrate Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That word everlasting is better translated perpetual so that we would have perpetual life. Everlasting life is not something you enjoy after you die and you go to eternity. In the context of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, everlasting life is a perpetual life that begins once you are born again. You have a taste of it now. It begins at the moment you are born again and it comes to its completion in eternity. For God so loved. Love is the action. Christmas is the effect. Because God loved, he sent his son. We celebrated Advent, love, hope, peace, and joy. The primary is love. It is because of God's love that we can have hope. It is because of God's love that we can have joy. And it is because of God's love that we experience peace. Because it is because of his love that he sent his son. God's love is a saving love. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Please hear me. You are not condemned because you choose to reject Jesus as Savior. That is not what condemns you. You are saved when you choose to repent and trust in Jesus as your Savior, but whether you make a choice or not, you are condemned before you make a choice. It is your default position. It is where you live. Because our nature is sinful, we are condemned not by rejecting Jesus, by not accepting him. His love is a saving love. Please hear me on this. Jesus came at Christmas, 
in a manger, in, huma- in humility, took on the cloak of humanity, would come, live, minister, suffer, die, defeat death, and rise again. We trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, and there is a day coming, fast approaching, where Jesus Christ will return in a way that is very different than the humility he came in when he came to Bethlehem as a baby. When he comes again, he will come in the clouds, in glory, with great power, and it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. His glory will be on full display, and at that moment, it'll be too late for you to accept him as Savior. Hear me on this. Hebrews 9 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. John 12, 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I didn't come into the world, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's talking about his first coming. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, he has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is love. This baby in a manger is an example of love and your choice to accept the love of God is today. His love is also, point three, an exposing love. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and that people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Okay, listen. We love darkness more than light. Y'all love bacon. Nobody's choosing carrots on their own because your nature, because of sin, drives you to that choice. And the problem is when we come to the light, our sin is exposed. And there's some in this room who, rather than run to the light, what you've done is you've ran to church. And you live like a Christian, and you go through the motions of being a Christian, and quite honestly, you're hiding in broad daylight. But you haven't come to the one that can save you. And when we approach Jesus, and we come out of darkness and we approach Jesus who is light, it wrecks us. And we confess and we repent and we plead for him to do a work that we can't do on our own. And only the Spirit of God has the power to complete. And here's a fourth thing. God's love is an empowering love. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. Listen to this that his deeds have been carried out in God. And what I love about that verse is, it's not just saying come out of darkness and into the light, because I believe a lot of people don't want to choose to follow Jesus Christ because they don't believe they can live up to that choice. I don't think I can do what God calls me to do. And what the verse says is, even the good things that you do are empowered by God in you. Jesus just doesn't call you to save you without giving you the ability to do the things that he's called you to. Is it still a struggle? You bet. Is it hard to break habits and addictions and attitudes? You bet. 
But as a follower of Jesus Christ, the promise is not only did I call you to save you, but I will enable you and I will empower you to do the very things that I called you to do. That's an incredible promise. So my question as we close, are you saved? Have you been born again? Am I describing you? What's it look like to be born again? How does a born-again or saved person respond this Christmas? Matthew 2, verse 10, speaking of the wise men, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, what, what, what's your source of joy this Christmas? When you think of Jesus, when you think of the Christmas season, when you see the lights on a dark night, does it remind you of the love of Jesus? Is that your source of joy? Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. What are you worshiping this Christmas? The season? The bowl games? Time with family, time with friends, the presence given, the presence received. Are we worshiping the event or are we worshiping who the event and all of these things was intended to celebrate? A father who had an incredible, unconditional love for us. This is then opening their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think God's got plenty of gold. Do you think he's okay in the gold category? Plenty of perfume, plenty, plenty of spices. I think that's handled. The wise men gave Jesus their treasure. Jesus is asking us today that he be our treasure. That he be the thing that we hold of highest value. Am I born again? I, I know that I am. I hope that I am. I think that I am. I'm not sure. To be saved means that you've been changed by the Spirit of God in a way that is noticeable. And you've repented of your sin and trusted in Him, believed in Him for your deliverance. Let's pray. Father, we're going to um, leave this place. And uh, the moment will pass. And we will be confronted with the busyness of the season. And uh, if we are not careful, we will miss what you've called us to hear today. And Father, I would just pray that you would put a pause in our spirits, that we would not leave this place undecided, that we would be honest enough and bold enough with ourselves to say, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I confident? Am I confused? Father, what an incredible thing that because of your work on the cross for us, that today we can be changed, we can be transformed, we can be born anew, Father, let that be the joy behind our celebration this Christmas. It's in your great name we pray.